With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining me for the 21st episode of my new podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is why has hatred become so prominent today? With me is Barrett Brogart, the author of Hatred, Understanding Our Most Dangerous Emotion. The publisher is Oxford University Press. Barrett is a professor of philosophy and a Cooper Fellow at the University of Miami. Her areas of research include the topics of perception, emotions, and language. This is the fourth book she's published with Oxford University Press over the past decade, along with The Superhuman Mind, which was published by Penguin in 2015. Barrett, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely. Looking forward to it. There's so much we'll be hard-pressed to get around to most of what I want to cover in 30 to 40 minutes. So to begin, what's this book about? Just give us kind of a top line for the listener. Yeah, it's about hatred, and it has two parts. It uh, has uh, a part, uh, uh, the first four chapters, uh, that's about personal hate, and then it has uh, another four chapters that's about group hate. Uh, so I go through hate in relationships or with friends, um, and whether that can be justified in the in the first part. And then I look at hating groups. Uh, so, for example, hating a social group, right? So if people um, hate a certain uh, type of people, uh, say Muslims, then that would be a social group. Uh, that's group hatred, and I argue that that's never justified. Okay, so let's go back maybe and define hatred for for the listener. And I'm also interested in its relationship to contempt because that's an emotion that comes up pretty frequently in your book. Yes, so I say that the the way we use hatred in ordinary language is actually ambiguous, uh, which means that we use it in two different ways. So one way we use it uh, is the way that it occurs in words like hate speech, hate mail, group hate, hate group, and so on. And when we use it in that way, we're actually not just talking about uh, hate in... um, should we say, like, in the hot, angry sense, but also the colder form of hatred, which uh, we could uh, call contempt, was more to contempt, of course. Uh, but briefly, 
contempt is a way of looking down on people. So if you are not trying to fight them, whether with words or with swords, but you're sort of ignoring them or trying to look down on them, or you are considering to them to be less worthy than you, that's also a form of hate as the word occurs in those um, that those phrases that I mentioned, like hate, hate group or hate mail, for example. In the narrow sense, though, it's, it's, it's distinct from contempt. Okay. So let me, I, I find this really intriguing, the relationship between anger and hatred, because as I'm listening to you and I read the book, of course, closely, it seems to me in some ways that hatred is hotter than anger, and yet it also lasts longer because you can have spasms of anger, but it seems like we're talking about something that's a more, almost like a fixed attitude to an individual or to a group. Uh, have I missed some nuance there? I'm again. I'm just interested to tease out this relationship between anger and hatred. Yeah, it's it, no, no, you're on the right track. It's um, anger. Anger comes in many forms. Uh, so when we say that it doesn't last long, that's uh, usually because we're thinking of someone expressing their anger. Anger. Mostly, when people express their anger, they don't take days to do that. Right. Like, <laughs> sure. Rather minutes. But we also talk about resenting someone for a long time. Uh, so resentment, for example, is is also a form of anger. Um, but there's something that's harder about hate um, or deeper or stronger about hate. And that's that, that it's more holistic. And, uh, it's about the person, uh, not just about what they did. So in, in resentment and anger, um, uh, we have something that the person did that, or another person did that made the person angry, right? So, so if you are angry at someone, it's because of something they did, right? But you're not necessarily thinking the person is a bad person because there are many reasons they could have acted wrongly if it's just on one occasion. Hate is stronger because you are also sort of communicating with the emotion to the person that there's something wrong with them. Uh, so it moves from what they did to who they are, what they represent or yes. something sustained like that. You you had in the book at one point that you had Googled, I believe it was, or searched for uh, emotion words online, which were most prevalent. I was pretty interested in the list because they included sadness, pride, trust, hate, which certainly validates as being an important topic, and love. But I also noticed two that I that were missing that I thought would have been more prominent, especially now in the age of COVID-19, I would expect fear. And then happiness was missing from the list. So those five emotions, sadness, pride, trust, hate, and love, why those five, do you think? Well, this was pre-COVID, so it was, uh, I, I added the date because, of course, it can change from day to day when you Google something. Sure. <laughs> this was Googled in 18, long before COVID, and I'm sure you're right that if we did uh, search for the same, um, use the same search words, fear would definitely come up. Um, and the list, of course, was a lot, a lot longer. It was just, I was mentioning the top ones. Uh, so so why those? Um I think that hate is 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 clear. So it's very much uh, at the center in the media right now, and it was also before the COVID, right? So right now, um, it's it's um, there's hatred in politics, for example, 
towards other countries, but there's also hatred, uh, which is sort of COVID unrelated, but the uh, Black Lives Matter movement. But before that, also, there was a lot of focus on white supremacism, which, um, of course, is still present. Uh, it's just that, that <laughs> I guess the news can only cover so much. Sure. Well, yeah, it, it certainly emotions are very much in the subtext and everything going on in the headlines of this culture right now. I want to go back one more time to to the emotional wheels that were with contempt. And you know, a lot of times when I look at contempt and how it's defined by psychologists, uh, you'll see that it's kind of paired as a cross between uh, anger and disgust. Um, you know, angry maybe because you don't respect the other party; they lied to you beneath you, and disgust because you kind of see them poisonous. I've also seen, however, in my my research and studies over this 20 years, that contempt can be paired as well or have an element of pleasure to it, that people enjoy putting down the other side. Now, I know you're interested in love and hate and how those two go together, so maybe this is a chance to speak to that. But I'm also interested in how maybe hatred and pleasure in hating can possibly go together. Yes, so uh, so hate in, in hatred and, and in the broad sense, that would include concept, um, that actually can activate some of the very same circuits in the brain as, as when you're fairly newly in love with someone. Um, so that would be the dopamine, especially dopamine circuit. That's the sort of the feel-good um, hormone, uh, but also the hormone that's um, involved in addiction is also the hormone that makes you motivated and makes you move uh, and and it's, a, it's it's the dopamine that um, is given for example to 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 kids with um, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder because they they lack it in the front of the brain and that that's the um, one of the the uh, circuits in the brain that's activated in new love and in uh in hate that's uh, at least when it's um uh, sort of on your mind so you get you can see activation if you put people in a scanner and you show them um something that will activate hatred in them or tell a story um and you can see something that activates hatred in them you will see a dopamine circuit um or rather, in a, in a normal scanner, you will see the areas that produce dopamine uh, light up. Sure. So, so I, I can see how uh, love and hatred could be paired in that they're they're both quite intense. But I admit it's disturbing to imagine that we take pleasure in you know hatred. Is it because it's giving us a a, a fixed object, object, a, a purpose, a meaning to our lives because we can define ourselves in relationship? To an enemy, as it were, is that is that part of where the pleasure comes from, or is it beyond that, or something else? I I think it's not also always activate uh, associated with pleasure. Uh, no, so but but when, it, but when it is, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I think you can definitely uh, feel a strong hatred towards someone who betrayed you, really betrayed you. Say a friend, a former friend, really betrayed you without there being anything pleasant about it. But you're right, especially in group hate. I think that there's an element of pleasure that you can um, detect. Of course, um, one way to, to look at whether or, or how it's expressed is to go to some of, of, of the boards, right? The message boards online, yep. uh, not pleasant to go to, but, but that's one way where you can see that 
the, these uh, expressions of hate uh, and exchanges because it's usually groups of similar-minded uh, people there. But you can also see that uh, their expressions of enjoyment in expressing the hatred. So with group hate, I think that that is definitely um, a motivating factor, right? So it's it's um, it takes the place of something else that could be pleasant, um, but wouldn't be hurtful or even harmful to other people. Yeah, as opposed to going to church, this is the diabolical <laughs> version of w- worshiping your own hatred or something. I'm going to want to move to the the group side in a little bit, but I wanted to stay with the personal just a bit longer with a couple of questions here. One is there's a really interesting comment in your book at one point. You say, emotions are special kinds of perpetual attitudes. What, what did you mean by that comment? So um, emotions are... Um, Attitudes is a bit of a technical term. We use attitudes in, uh, in the sense in ordinary language of someone having an attitude, but it's also a technical term in, in psychology and philosophy and other fields where it's, um, it, it's, it's a certain mental state that has a certain directedness towards uh, the outside world. Um, and it's um, so that's two things to that, right? And that, that that's, uh, emotions are, are attitudes that um often linger even though we sometimes talk about we just mentioned that anger as something that's brief it uh, often is long lasting um emotions are often long lasting so in that sense they're they can be like beliefs so many of our beliefs are long lasting they are not always present uh to to our conscious minds the same uh goes for emotions so even if you hate someone or you are angry at someone you, uh, it's not necessarily on your mind 24-7. Sure. Well, we can have spasms of anger, but certainly when I think of someone who's, you know, repeatedly angry, you know, we use terms like hothead and so forth. And that's some of where I, I took that, which leads me to uh, another question, if I may. Uh, I, I'm really interested in the big five factor in the traits. And you mentioned in the book a sixth trait uh, that's being, uh, you know, investigated, considered strongly, and that's honesty humility. Uh, I guess my first question, playing devil's advocate just a little bit, is how is that honesty, humility trait, a sixth trait, different from agreeableness, which is, of course, one of the five existing traits? There's definitely some overlap. And in the, in the model uh, called hexagon, uh, mo- uh, the hexagon model, they, um, they uh, actually define the other uh, five traits a little bit differently. So, but it uh, emphasizes um, a certain. Uh, so, so if you're low on honesty, humility, then you are self-centered. Um, you have perhaps not full-blown narcissism, but some narcissistic traits. So it goes a little bit beyond agreeableness, even if you just compare it to agreeableness in in the standard Big Five, um, and and um, I just wanted to add to that that um, when I talk about these uh, factors in relation to emotions, uh, that is because emotions can also uh, be a disposition in you. So you can have, as you said, yep. someone being hot-headed. So you can have a tendency to be angry very often, for example. Um, so so it's similar to a trait like 
like that you are extroverted, you are hateful, a hateful person. That doesn't mean that you hate a specific person, uh, but that you have a tendency to be hateful or contempt a proneness is another example that I also discuss. Um, of course, with all the emotions, you could have a tendency towards being joyful, for example, right? So we have these emotion traits, as they're sometimes called. Yeah, well, George Orwell, the writer, said by the age of 50, a man has the face he deserves. Uh, and that, I think, is in part because we do have tendencies to go to certain emotions and show those emotions on our faces, and we can have muscle memory and kind of defaults, as it were. You, you mentioned narcissism just a moment ago in, in your comments. Uh, I was also interested in a relationship. I know it's taking us off hatred just a little bit, but the relationship of narcissism to contempt uh, intrigued me. I wonder what you might be able to say on that front. Yeah, so there was, a, well, by now a couple of studies that have been done showing that contempt proneness, so a tendency to have contempt towards people, um, not a specific uh, person, but people in general. So just thinking that you are above them is a central component of narcissism. And that's a bit new. Um, that That connection was sort of discovered fairly recently, or at least shown scientifically to be um, be there. The concept proneness is a central feature of narcissism, whether it's narcissism in the normal population or narcissism in the clinical sense. Well, I, I find that interesting in part because I just had a guest on the podcast last week who was talking about the prevalence of narcissism in executives in the business world. Uh, and, and obviously contempt and looking down at others uh, makes it much harder to bond with the rank and file in your company. Um, so whether it's executives or, or, or uh, politicians who are leaders of the country or countries, uh, it would seem to me that that's an intriguing and, and, and devastating uh, conclusion to arrive at with lots of implications. Let's move on to to the group side of things because that's so important and it kind of fits the the title of this episode, which is why has hatred become so prevalent? Why do you think hatred has become so prevalent today? Uh, it's it's pretty striking how much that seems to be you know the subtext of a lot of the news stories. Yes, uh, and and it's a question that everyone is asking. Um, I I do think that there is a connection between. Uh, uh, the very new recruits, as I would call them, so the very young people that are recruited into hate groups, and and how certain studies that have shown uh, a, a tendency to be um, or have greater scores on, on narcissism in the younger generations. So ah. we're not talking about a clinical form of narcissism in these cases, but um, just higher scores, so narcissistic tendencies uh, have increased among younger people, um, but it's it's not uh, maybe narcissism that the, the narcissism that, that most people are familiar with. It's a kind of vulnerable um, narcissism, uh, hypersensitive narcissism, as it's also called. So vulnerable narcissism is harder to detect because although they have feelings that are similar to narcissism um, that is grandiose, as it's also called, uh, they, they have these feelings of uh, everything being about them. And sometimes they even have feelings of being, of course, better than others and so on. But they also have um, another sense of self where they 
uh, feel the need for affirmation. So not admiration uh, as in classical narcissism, but affirmation, which means that they will seek out certain groups where they can get that affirmation very easily. And so groups that can give them that are hate groups, right? It, it, it's not necessarily the only kind of group that can give them that, but that's one kind of group that can offer that kind of um, affirmation and and also the, also sort of nurture their their sense of being better than others. Sure. Well, I mean, as you're talking, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, okay, so I join this hate group, I get an emotional jolt, a high, a, a heroin kick, as it were, from the str- strength of that emotion. Then I've got a group, as you said, to affirm me. And yet a lot of what we're talking about here, if I hear you correctly, is social media, which has this strange thing where we are connected, but virtually, and it's tenuous and maybe not fulfilling. But then again, it, you know, affirms groups. I mean, how much is social media driving this as opposed to just economic issues, uh, you know, COVID-19 issues, so forth? Yeah, uh, there's some interesting research that that, uh, actually uh, goes back decades, um, um, but was, uh, as a prediction, uh, it was uh, Cass Sunstein. so uh, a researcher um, at, now at Harvard uh, University, if I uh, remember correctly, and um, he was at the University of Chicago at the time, and he was predicting that with the um, internet, um, uh, it would be more common to find groups of uh, similar-minded individuals. Uh, so you would be more likely to end up in a group where you were either, either united by a joint cause or united by um, hatred, for example, towards um, certain groups, um, much much easier, right, than before the internet. Because if you if you um, go to to a, a church group, say, or you go to um, a, a group, a place where you can do sports or whatever, where anything that's face to face you're likely to find a diverse group of people. But when you join groups or message boards on the internet, you're likely to find people who are much more like yourself. And uh, that can lead to polarization, which is uh, an escalation of the initial, uh, say, emotions that the people have. So if they start out having a little bit of uh, sort of, irritation directed towards, say, immigrants because perhaps they lost their job. Uh, they enter uh, a group or a message board on, on, online, and and the research has then shown that that, that can escalate uh, the those feelings that might just be, say, start out with, like, slight irritation to extreme hatred. So they get, they get hijacked or amplified. I'm reading a book right now about gangs and the fact that in most gangs, it really comes down to two or three people who tend to be the most violent, who kind of pull the rest of the gang with them. Not, not that the games are, gangs are benign, but there is someone who's really amplifying this. This sounds a bit like that. Once you get to the message board, there's going to be certain voices that really just push the whole dynamic. In talking about groups, there's a couple of things. I mean, in places where I just so agree with you, but it's it's just it's disturbing and yet uh, worth talking about. Um, you know, just on its its face. You you mentioned, for instance, misogyny. 
Uh, this is, you know, obviously an instance of, of hate based attitudes toward a, you know, a whole group of people, women, majority on the planet. And you say that men, why you, you basically ask the question, why indeed would men hate women in quote unquote, a man's world? Um, share with the listeners what you've thought about on that, you know, on that line. Yeah. So, um, so I think that in a man's world, right there, men have privileges, just like like white people have privileges compared to blacks. So men do have privileges that uh, women do not have, and it's still the case. And so there is a tendency to um, want to keep it that way. Of course, we're talking about a subgroup of men. It's not. I'm not talking yes. about all men, um, but if so, so the so the idea is that it's a man man's world. Uh, so so men are slightly better um, along certain dimensions than than women, um, and and so that's um, in some sense a, a form of contempt uh, that underlies that form of a misogyny. Thinking, okay, we want to keep this uh, the way it is, where men have these privileges and are slightly better than women. Um, and, but then there's also the the, the more hateful, um, the hot hate um, uh, form of misogyny, which is directed at people who um, who don't follow uh, the rules or the norms um, in, in in society. So they don't uh, they don't actually conform to the idea of a man's world. For example, it could be pe- people uh, who um, are very interested in seeking positions that have typically been dominated by males, but it could also be um, just women who, um, who 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 do not necessarily dress or act uh, like women traditionally have done. And there are lots of other examples I give, but those are some of the examples of where um, hatred then becomes a way of... Um, either punishing people or threatening people, I mean, in this case, women, uh, into conforming, right? So, so if they are, um, if you, if you feel the, the, this hot hatred, if you, if you, um, try to compete for, for a a position in a company, uh, that's a higher position in a company or uh, a position in politics, and you constantly get these hateful attacks directed towards you that may or may not work, but that's the idea that that would then push them out of the competition and back in their traditional roles. So, so I understand the economic benefits, I guess, of you know trying to protect your privileges from a psychological point of view is what's in it for these men who hate women, that it affirms that they are of higher status and there's more separation if they can, quote unquote, push the you know women down further. Is, is that what's going on for them on a psychological basis? Yeah, there's the idea that, that um, if you think so, that if you have a certain world picture where men are in certain positions and women are in other positions that are considered lower, so traditionally... Um, Women were uh, caregivers, uh, nurturing, um, had to preferably look a certain way, and so on. And men were the thinkers and and the ones in power. Uh, and then, if you then see certain women um, going against those norms, then that uh, can lead to to hatred towards those 
women, uh, but expressed in as a way of of pushing them down, right, to where they belong in um, from their point of view. So, so huh. yes, it's it's it's, it's um, it can it can serve that way. Um, the contempt form of uh, or contempt based form of misogyny, is, I, I I argue, is more of uh, sort of uh, what's already dominant in the society in that it's a man's world or it still is a man's world and so that means that there is a certain contempt that there is uh the idea that that men deserve uh more respect than women and there's more disrespect uh to towards women Okay. So not only is it a, a, a man's world, um, I would say in the U.S. at least, in many places, it's also still a white man's world. You mentioned in the book that the greater the economic inequality you write, the greater the hatred of minorities. That, that would on the surface seem rather odd because minorities, especially in the U.S., tend to not be uh, as wealthy, particularly blacks, also you know Hispanic people. Um, so you wouldn't be envying them. They're not taking something from you because they, they have nothing. And yet I, I don't doubt the comment. I'm just curious if you could say more about it. Yeah, so it, that, that comment is based on, on research, actually, uh, showing that to be the case, that if you look at um, neighborhoods where there's greater poverty, there you will also fi- find um, a greater tendency to, um, in, in, in white, say, white people in that community to hate um, black people or immigrants or other um, ethnic groups. Um, so that's that's based on, on scientific research. And then the question is, why is that? Uh, which, which is the question you're raising. Um, and there are different uh, theories. So the research doesn't really show why that is. Um, but one theory is that uh, the more you're struggling um, so if you're poor, the more you're struggling, the more you're also likely to try to find um, a cause of why you're struggling, but you're not um, obviously looking at the right causes. So so you identify what you see perhaps in the neighborhoods. So let's say you're very poor, you're in a, in a poor neighborhood, um, and you see some immigrants um, uh, having certain jobs, whereas you, you, you are unable to find a job, so you're likely to blame it on perhaps on immigrants. Um, or, or if you see uh, black people holding certain jobs, you're likely to, to blame it on, on, on them. Of course, there, there's a lot of um, cognitive errors going on here. The thing is that if we see, uh, say, one successful black person, and we are looking for a cause of our own struggle or poverty or something like that, uh, then we are likely to generalize, right? So we're likely to to um, to not really take into account uh, all the poor black people or uh, Latinx, uh, poor Latinx people, but just look at, okay, that successful immigrant or that, that successful black person and then generalize from that from that. So that's one theory, but um, but the, it's, yeah, it's a fact that uh, social inequality, in fact, uh, is a is likely factor in escalating hatred. 
exacerbating hatred. I mean, that's that's also very disturbing because along with you know social media, it's not going away. The the trend lines, as you would well know, in the last forty years is for greater inequality, you know, to characterize American society. So it seems to me that hatred's uh, going to have a strong foothold here in the human psyche and in our society for some time to come. Before we run out of time, I'd like to move to a positive note here. Um, what are the ways to relieve or educate or try to uh, soften the blow of hatred? I mean, what can we look to for a positive course of action? Yeah, so um, so I mentioned some. I, I go into how to, to uh, possibly uh, legislate against hate speech uh, in a way that... that um, isn't the the standard way of suggesting that we legislate against hate speech? So that, that I talk a lot about that, but there are other things that you can do. Um, so you you um, you can sort of foster diversity in in the community. So not just in say the classroom or in the universities or in the workplaces, um, but uh, the, there's something called Civic Saturday that. Um, now huh. it's taking place in many cities and and where people go instead of also on Saturdays so they can still go to church but it's similar it's sort of like a secular form of meeting uh that's so it's 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 um a place to to actually debate uh your views with other people but it's go the idea is that you actually have a very diverse group of people so you have people who are um say politically very uh to the left and politically very much to the right and people in between um and and other research have shown that if you can actually have more debate uh, in groups of diverse groups of people uh you're much more likely to um to reduce hatred so that's that's one uh, thing that we can we can do, which is is uh, not as easy to do on the internet. So, so that's why the Civic Saturdays are actually sure. in person. Um, there are ideas of uh, changing the, the voting system. Uh, so one uh, suggestion is something called ranked voting that is already yep. implemented in, in certain places. The idea is that instead of saying, okay, I'm voting for uh, person uh, uh, X, and then you put that one vote down, uh, you 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 might rank them right. You might have um, depending on how it's implemented. You can actually um, rank one uh, person as number one, and another person as number two, and a third person as number three. And what it does is that if you imagine that uh, you have multiple candidates, so it's not uh, as effective probably with just two candidates in, say, a presidential election. But imagine that we are talking about running for, for uh, some other political position where you have multiple candidates, then politicians um, will need to cater not just to their base because they might not win because of their first all their first choice votes. They might win because they have a lot of second choice votes or a lot of third choice votes. So they need to cater to a much broader um, fragment of the population and so so that's definitely a way that we could perhaps reduce this kind of hatred that now is is uh integrated into politics today sure yeah no the the primary system that seems to lead to polarization is not something that helps us move past hatred in way too many cases 
Um, anyway, I want to thank you, Barrett, so much for being a guest here today. This has been episode number 21, Why Has Hatred Become So Prominent Today? Uh, my guest is Barrett Brogard. She is the author of Hatred, Understanding Our Most Dangerous Emotion. To check out other episodes or my books or other activities, including my appearances on other people's podcasts, please feel free to visit my company's website at www.sensorylogic.com. If you have a follow-up question for Barrett, feel free to email me at dhill at sensorylogic.com again. If you are interested in the show, if you are pleased with it, you might want to give a five-star rating or a view online. Every little bit of social media support helps. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an appropriate epigram. So today's quote comes from Alice Walker, who said, You know how big love is? Love is big. Love can hold anger. Love can even hold hatred. Until next time, be kind and stay safe. Mm-hmm.